Hello everyone, welcome to the third episode of Cosmos with a K. This is John from Cosmos School. Today I'm here in San Mateo with Manish and Katan of Edmodo and we'll be talking about a lot of fun topics such as taking a tech company public, about good and bad teachers and also if technology makes us more or less creative. So, have fun! I'm here with uh, Manish and Ketan from Edmodo in uh, San Mateo um, at their office. Um, Hello, happy to be here. Nice Hi guys. To be here. Hi. So, um, can we get started by maybe introducing yourselves? Um, you know, um, what what you did so far before Edmodo, and also how you ended up at Edmodo, and what you're doing at Edmodo. I think would be super interesting. Okay. So do you want me to start? So basically, uh, of course, Manish and Ketan, we are both brothers, but we also happen to be business partners. And we've been in EdTech specifically for over 25 years. So it started off with uh, um, myself and Joe, who were both engineers at Apple. And we came across an idea. It wasn't even our idea. It was an idea that a bunch of teachers were talking on on the internet, this is the early internet, the Unix-based internet, <laughs> and they were discussing, uh, and this would have been August of 1991, so a long time ago, they were discussing um, uh, that it would be great if they could provide a computer-like experience for kids on the desktop in the classroom, uh, because those days even desktops used to cost three or four thousand mm-hmm. dollars. There were no lap- laptops that actually that were not even out yet. And so the idea would be, um, can we get an inexpensive uh, product that would mimic a computer experience, didn't have to be a computer, that the kids could start using much earlier on so that they could be familiar with it. And what Joe and I knew is we could actually build what they were asking for because we would use a full-size keyboard, but we would use the Apple desktop bus, which was the precursor to the USB. Mm-hmm. but it was a full-fledged bus to provide a way to connect to computers and get the data back and forth. So we went ahead and built a product which ultimately turned into a company. Uh, that's when Manish comes in because our original plan was to actually just make this product within Apple. Mm-hmm. And the way it works is if Apple, if you make a product, Apple ships it and it becomes a big success, you basically become a rock star in the company. Mm-hmm. Right? And that was what we were hoping for as a way to become recognized, to get promoted, you know, things like that within right. the company. Uh, Apple, unfortunately, chose not to do it. And, um, you know, we went through a series of um, uh, presentations, but they chose not to do it. And ultimately, what ended up happening is, uh, it was actually a very sad day. That's when I called Manish, who was at that time working for a pacemaker company in Minneapolis mm-hmm. and said, guess what? It's a really sad day. Apple's decided not to do this product. And that's when Manish actually said, why don't we do it ourselves? And we began writing a product plan and, and with the idea that we would uh, 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 do it on our own. Now, Apple was nice enough to give, it, give us the idea release to go and start our own company. Okay. And that's how our journey as an entrepreneur began. It wasn't <laughs> actually something by design it was more or less more accident or necessity yeah so i think one thing we would add is this is manish it clearly was uh, an accident we were fortunate enough to have the idea come to us from a group of educators so that was a huge 
and I sometimes joke, but I still feel this is true that if if we had known enough about the edtech market because it wasn't really defined that way back in the early 90s, we probably would have never gotten into it because of <laughs> all the difficulties and hardships, especially at the K-12 level. But we did, and things we were fortunate that things worked out the way they did. We were able to take uh, Alpha Smart public. This was the first company in early 2004, so almost 15 years ago. And subsequently, Renaissance Learning, which was also a public company at the time, acquired us about a year and a half later. <laughs> so Ketan, Joe and I stayed on until uh, 2006, and um, that was our first stint and foray into EdTech. That's where we learned a lot, uh, and we are still learning. But that was the first, and you asked about how did we get here. So then we took some time off in 2008, we founded another company called Aspen Learning. And the, the, the idea behind that company was simply to create a simpler LMS for the K-12 market because learning management systems or LMSs were already pretty popular at the higher ed level. And uh, we saw that actually uh, becoming more and more entrenched. And we saw the cost of computers getting uh, 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 lower and lower, becoming more inexpensive. And we thought that therefore the LMS would start coming down to the school level. Mm -hmm. So we created something called Open Classroom. And uh, interestingly, we had a hard time scaling it primarily because of companies like Edmodo, which were already <laughs> free at the time and we were trying to sell. And, and so Pearson came and acquired some of those assets in, in uh, 2010. And then maybe you can tell them about Route and 1 and Edmodo. right around that time and while we were struggling, we came across two other ex-Googlers who had left Google Vibhu and Adam, and they were trying to start up an education company. And we were all in the same shared office environment in, in Mountain View called Sunfire. Mm -hmm. And very quickly realized that actually if we join forces, we'll all be better off. And so we all four together co-founded a company called Root One. Mm -hmm. And Root One's uh, intent, it, was, it had just, it was around, about 10 years ago. So, um, it, you know, iPhone had just come out, lots of excitement around it as a smartphone. And so the plan was, can we actually create an app that runs on smartphones with a cloud backend that is actually checking and measuring and helping you at a much more real-time level uh, mm -hmm. with uh, improving the way, so it's no longer a static app, but it improves the way you're going to learn. So for example, for vocabulary yeah. or for grammar or for even mathematics, but do it not only in a gamified way, but as Ketan said, more importantly, um, in an adaptive way. Right. So that was our first foray into adaptive learning and specifically gamified learning, but it was very much mobile-based. And the platform was in the back end. In the and cloud. we used old, like, you know, some of the algorithms we were using were, like, developed in the late 1800s, like the Ebbinghaus okay. model of memory decay. And so, you know, but now with the cloud computing power, uh, we could actually measure when your brain, for example, will have a memory loss versus Manisha's brain, right? Mm -hmm. And we were rolling that all into the app real time. So it was pretty exciting. And, you know, we had a couple of misses. Our first two or three apps actually didn't do very well. It was a crossword puzzle. We thought it would be the most amazing <laughs> thing. And then we realized that crosswords are only used by a very small, very dedicated group of people who love crosswords and nobody else. And so, didn't do too well. But then we had an app, you know, somebody was ch challenging us a lot on 
looking at the Bloom's um, hierarchy and going up and saying, can you go up the, up the value and think a lot more on the other side of the brain? And yeah. so we came up with an app still about vocabulary, but it was actually uh, an app that uh, was a combination of Pictionary and Telephone. These are two games in, in the US that are quite popular right. or used to be popular. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and But we designed this for the iPad, which has just come out, and it was a massive success. We had 300 downloads in the first month. Apple noticed that, put us on the featured list, okay. and we had a million downloads. So we said, oh, now wow. this is a good time to go looking for raising a round of funding. So until now, yeah. we were self-funding the whole um, whole operation. It was a really cool app. And, and so we were looking for funding and uh, at that time one of the investor VCs that we was we were engaged with and that that we had um, that seemed very interested is Greylock partners yeah. and Greylock already had a portfolio company in their in investments uh, which is Edmodo and actually that's when they realized that look we, we like this team we like what these guys are doing but can they become a part of Edmodo uh, rather than having two separate investments and that Edmodo acquired us about six years ago in March of 2013 and then the board told the three of us Ketan, Vibhu and myself to basically take on the, the helm and be uh, act as co-founders mm-hmm. in 2015 Okay. and uh, now fast forward to now about almost just under a year ago we were acquired by a Chinese company that's uh, publicly traded on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange called NetDragon. NetDragon also owns other educational assets like Promethean, which makes um, uh, interactive panels and smart boards, and they're the largest manufacturer uh, in, in, in that segment, and, uh, Prom- and Jumpstart, which has educational software uh, for mathematics and reading and, and learning. So now we are part of the educational division of NetDragon, and that's where we are today. <laughs> Well, it's quite a quite a journey, I'd say. Um, so, um, the founder of Edmodo, Nick, yes. I think is his name. Is he still uh, is he still the, the CEO or is what what's his role? No. So his role is basically an advisory role. He's not uh, not the CEO. No. He stepped away in late 2014 mm-hmm. uh, because of personal reasons. He had small children, and so. He's only uh, um, uh, involved in a, on an advisory basis now. And, and he moved back to Chicago, which yeah. is oh, what okay. he really, really wanted to do. Otherwise, he probably would have continued to run the company. Yeah. But uh, it became quite apparent that you can't run a company out of Chicago, yeah. which is a Silicon Valley company. So. And um, th- that's when you basically took over? Yes. Exactly. So your roles? What's so your our roles are, it's, it's interesting. So uh, the titles officially, uh, Vibhu is CEO. Ketan is general manager overseeing mostly the consumer side of things. I'm general manager overseeing the institutional side of things. But like all co-founders, the three of us think of ourselves in a way like a triumvirate Mm -hmm. where we wear different hats at different times. And that's really the best way to describe it rather than any siloed roles because we we still saw ourselves as as a startup even though we have now crossed over 100 million registered users. We think that the the, the ethos is still very much a startup ethos. How many employees do you have currently? We have 85 employees. Okay, that's a, that's a good size. <laughs> yeah. Um, pretty cool. I mean, what I, what I, what I find super interesting um, in your story is, you know, that you have been working in the education tech, technology sector for such a long time. And, you know, you say, Katan, in 91 when you were working at Apple. Yes. 
that's one you know I would argue the computer revolution you know what, what we call it today st started to happen yes um, and I've you know I obviously I've been I've been three years old at that time but um, <laughs> um, I've watched a couple of interesting interviews with you know Bill Gates and, and Steve Jobs and they do to also talk about education and um, it seems like it seems like there was almost like an overpromise of what compute how computers could change education at that time. Could, can you talk about the, about Absolutely. your experience at that time? What Absolutely. was what was being expected? You know. Yeah, yeah. So as you know, a lot of this is now of course legend and it's in history books and everything else. But if you remember when the computer first was developed, these were big mainframes, giant you know room sized machines. Right. Um, uh, uh, they were meant to do computing tasks for businesses, primarily designed for businesses or the defense. And, you know, there's a very famous quote by Ken Olson, who was the CEO of Digital Equipment Corporation, which doesn't even exist today, mm -hmm. uh, where he said when he was asked, do you, do you know how do you know how many computers the world will need? Mm -hmm. He at that time said that I don't think the world will need more than three or four computers. Right. <laughs> and then, you know, fast forward to. Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs uh, kind of tinkering around with like, how can we make this uh, personal? How can we turn this and shrink it down so that it, every single person could have one? Right. And, and you, know, they, you know, they coined the term personal computer, even though IBM grabbed it and <laughs> turned it into PC. Um, the, the thought there was at that time super revolutionary because here you have people who are already building and selling computers saying, the world won't need more than three or four computers. Right. And here you have a bunch of guys in Silicon Valley saying, how can we just shrink it down and make it available to everybody? So you can see the massive disconnect. Mm -hmm. And then you really fast forward to today, we all have massive computers in the form of smartphones yeah. in our pockets, right? Yeah. So that, that, that achievement in my mind has just happened in many ways, if you think about it. Yeah, until now, computers were still very clunky, cumbersome, even laptops tend to be, you know, mm -hmm. stuff that you still need to charge, you need to figure out, you know, when can I take it, when can I not take it. So you can imagine the days when the first, the first Apple was built inside a briefcase, a wooden briefcase, right? Mm -hmm. And then it went on to become this box and then it went on to become a smaller box. And so the progression happened along the way and at every stage, uses were found so it was not necessarily it was definitely a technology where the marriage of technology with uh, actually a, a productivity use case very often happened along the way right you know it was never thought of right away so the first apple twos was supposed to be just fun machines and education to help with education and stuff like that mm -hmm. but you can imagine not much education really happened yeah right even though they were designed for a lot of education. It wasn't until the mouse and the graphical user interface came about that the first set of real education applications began to happen with things like HyperCard and stuff, right? What's that? HyperCard, yeah, nobody yeah, even knows, but it was yeah. basically think of it as a, a series of flip charts mm -hmm. that you could either, you know, make them play and you would have, see some motion yeah. or you could see them as almost like slides uh, like, a power, slides. like a powerpoint oh, slide yeah and so it was creating this is before powerpoint this is yeah. before all of that right so these are technologies each one of those was a stepping stone and 
almost always it was some visionary teacher or early adopter who would take that and say, yeah, I can use it like this, mm-hmm. right? And so each of those stages added to the improvement. And throughout this period, I would say, I mean, you know, if you really want to be, um, what is the best term? Very data-driven about really how much did it really add to the learning outcome? Mm-hmm. You would say that every stage by itself probably didn't add a lot. Right. I mean, think about it. If you had a school, entire school used to have a computer lab, mm-hmm. and that's probably what you grew up with, right? Yeah. A exactly. computer lab. Exactly. And the teachers had to reserve that computer lab. Yeah. And if you look at the num- ratio of the number of kids in that school versus the 30 computers in the lab, yeah. you're talking each kid probably got half an hour a week. Right. And in fact, that was the issue. In fact, Seymour Papert famously said that, look, if you want everyone to write, they have to have a pencil or a pen. And if you want to see the same sort of gains in computing, mm-hmm. everyone has to have a device. Otherwise, what are we expecting? Right. So that's one end of the spectrum that seems, and, and Seymour Papert has done some amazing research. But Larry Cuban here at Stanford was wrote a book about saying, look, we've invested. This is in the mid-90s, or maybe it was the early 2000s where he said we finally invested at least in a decade, so it probably was early 2000, decades worth of hardware, software for specifically, they were looking at K-12 education. And he's saying, what are the gains? And he's saying billions spent. So he came from the other end saying like, really, what are we, what is the ROI for this investment? And Seymour was saying that we have to first of all get in and then we'll figure out the ways. And in the meantime, the DOD folks and the ARPANET folks and all of them were focusing on actually connectivity so that the internet finally came out. So not only did you have devices and their cost is going lower and lower, but finally you're able to connect. And that is when I think mm-hmm. that's what made the biggest difference, at least in our minds, in addition to what Ketan already said about making the devices much more personalized, mm-hmm. like mobile. No, so, but as you said, Manish, a, a pencil in every hand yeah. and paper in every hand will makes it makes a good writer right but now that is we we can see it's much more achievable with right. um, devices like smart smartphones because now you're talking about and each each person each student each learner having a device even just to give you a in perspective their, yeah. in 91 when we founded around the time when alpha smart alpha smart was officially founded in 92 but around that time there was an average in the us of about between 15 to 20 students per computer, usually a desktop computer. Laptops were too expensive, they're super expensive. Mm -hmm. That ratio over now, what is more than 25 years is finally down, not including mobile devices because it will come down even, is finally down or maybe five years ago to about four to one or three to one. And now with, with mobile devices, it's closer to one to one at least in the US. And so some major changes, and really the question we have to ask is, what were the expectations then if there were such few devices, they were not connected, it was expensive or not accessible, and it was a little bit like the Wild West. Yeah, and if you, if you, yeah, and then if you follow the progress of technology adoption, and specifically computer adoption in schools, versus computer and technology adoption in the enterprise into businesses. Mm -hmm. You know, you think about it, the early placements of technology 
into businesses were things like accounting departments, right? Whereas in schools, the bold were attempting to make a change right in the classroom. Clearly, of course, the accounting department in schools could utilize the same accounting software that was being used in businesses to help improve productivity in their accounting departments. But the real change was how do you change learning outcomes and how you how do you make learning more productive, right? right in the classroom. Yeah, and, and that was that has proven to be a lot more challenging, and it's taken a much. But it's also period. exciting because finally, as Ketan said, there's the devices are at the students' level. Not at least let's say in the U.S. Not everywhere in the world. In the world, increasingly it's so. But we have advisors like David Thornburg and others who are very very excited about this student <coughs> student-centered learning approach. That. It doesn't mean that teachers are out of the equation. Yeah. It means that students actually have a much bigger um, interest in what they're doing and, and ability to do it because of the technology that has that they can finally avail of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But, but would you say that education, like the ROI, as you said, um, has fallen short of expectations with the use of technology? Were people expecting too much? Was it overpromised? We've seen it. I mean, if you walk, if you walked into a classroom in the mid '90s, I remember very vividly uh, closets that were filled with either uh, shrink wrap software. At the time, it wasn't cloud-based; it was actual shrink wrap <laughs> yeah. box software, uh, and very good software for whether whether it was mathematics or English language arts or science, uh, as well as hardware that wasn't being used. So this to me was the worst of it all, where mm-hmm. money was spent, but it actually wasn't deployed. I, I would guarantee, even at that time, there would be very few companies, businesses, that would do something like that. Mm-hmm. Often you go into a business, when they buy hardware, it's tagged, it's, you know, and it starts being used. It was actually quite different in schools, and you have to ask mm-hmm. yourself, why was that happening? No. So one aspect of the what I would think is is a poor ROI is utilization and and at least at the time a lot of people thought it was because teachers were not trained we needed more professional development again there's probably some truth to that uh, not everyone was comfortable with technology as it was changing quite quickly and people were you know at schools move a little bit more slowly but that alone is not the answer mm-hmm. for those who were using technology I think the ROI was fantastic and always has been uh, relatively good. The question is how uh, widespread is it and how evenly spread is it, not just in pockets. So over time, I think the ROI has actually become much better, partly because the cost of the investment has gone down. So that's one, that's the denominator. And I think the returns are finally there because you at least they're real, at least because of the connectivity, because of how people can do certain things that they simply couldn't do 20 years ago. So the question is, what window of time are we measuring it by? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, again, I would also say that very often, um, I mean, you know, we blame teachers, but the bottom line is, it's true even today, and I, I think it'll be true for the foreseeable future, is that a good teacher creates the biggest ROI in learning outcomes, mm-hmm. as opposed to a bad teacher. A bad teacher is extremely damaging right. uh, to the learning outcome. A good teacher is extremely, of course, beneficial. Then there's a whole bunch of teachers that are 
moderate teachers, right, are okay teachers. They're not bad, but they are, and they're not great, but they, they actually do get work done. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, I think often technology has not focused precisely on like, can we make those moderate teachers into better teachers, right? I think if we had focused a lot more mm-hmm. of our efforts in that area for the last few years, yeah. last say decade or two decades, maybe the outcome would have been different mm-hmm. but we focused on like how are we going to just take this cool technology and make it usable in the classroom right. without really focusing very precisely on certain kinds of targets knowing that you know that would make a big difference right yeah and to Keithan's point technology alone cannot solve this problem we already know that we know that you know good teachers matter the most and there's some great research by Rick Hanishek and others uh, that points to the actual, if you want to purely try to boil it down to economic terms, how much of a difference it can make to people's cumulative incomes over a life. And the numbers are staggering, really staggering in a positive way if you improve outcomes through what Ketan was just talking about, which is having better teachers. Better teachers. Yeah. So if you're looking for the one thing to try to really invest in yeah it would probably be that before technology yeah but then the question is okay suppose you can do it can technology enable as Ketan pointed out technology enable teachers to be even better at what they do or more productive or save them time so they can focus on the people who are either falling behind or you know not quite there yeah so and that's i'm guessing that's also part of it modo's mission Yes. Our mission is simple, is to connect all learners with the resources um, they need to achieve their full potential. And by all learners, we mean not just students, but even teachers. In this case, teachers are also learners because they can Mm -hmm. connect with other teachers and learn from them. In fact, they can even learn from students. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, So, I mean, and and then, you know, if we look at the history of education a little bit, um, before industrial, the age of industrialization, it was only rich people, princes could like afford teachers, and it was all one-on-one tutoring. Um, and, and then, like after the indri- <coughs> you know industrialization, nations and governments started to realize, hey, it's changing. Uh, we'll benefit as a nation if we educate our public, right? So that that's how public education started, and um, and um, it, in that form, it has stayed very similar like if you look at it today um, there are schools physical buildings kids go to they are organizing classes uh, in grades mm-hmm. and then you just advance through the grades um, yeah. now technology hasn't changed that um, so far it has made it better it has made teachers more efficient more effective um, uh, you know um, as you just described but um, that system hasn't changed. And I'm not saying it has to change, you know, not, not, not everything has to change. Yeah. But um, just now guessing, and this is just more like a, maybe a dream or a vision or a guess you would have, looking into the future 10 or 20 years, how could we use technology, also maybe technology that isn't existing today, that was just emerging today, to kind of like not only bring on incremental change, but maybe bring on more kind of like a step function to the outcome of education. So one thing that has remained, I think, relatively, 
constant, at least since the industrial model of education, which is what you were saying, not maybe the earlier model, mm-hmm. and that we are big believers of, we think it will continue to be a big driving factor, is the social aspect of education, which means that we learn the thesis, and we, we believe in this, that we learn better in groups than we do individually. Mm-hmm. Now, how those groups are managed and all is a secondary and an important question, but is secondary to would you over time just learn better on your own? And maybe a small percentage of the population can do that and do that effectively. Mm-hmm. But our thesis is that generally you do it better socially and together. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that is going to go away. So you talk mm-hmm. about technology, but I think there's the, the, the just the social aspect of how we learn and how our brains function, the communication, the collaboration, all are important. And obviously, Edmodo plays into this, which is why we are we are bullish on it. But no, that's but not the only reason. Of, and I mean, just yeah. think about humans, just Homo sapiens yeah. as a species. We tend to be extremely social. I agree. Yeah, and so, and that social behavior also tends to have learning that happen. Right in the early days, maybe it was how do we hunt better or mm-hmm. how do we you know, forage for food better or how do we make a fire yeah. and it's progressed over the years to how do we land on the moon and you know, so it just continues and, and we continue to progress and uh, and we, and it's actually both, it's all good and there's a lot of damaging stuff that happens, right? Wars and all the rest of it is mm-hmm. falls in the same category of uh, social learning or lack thereof. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's how we are as a species and so fundamentally if you believe that everything else that happens whether it's learning and, and the transformation that are going to happen around it through technology if they're not centered around certain social pieces they're likely going to not be as effective and so their technology we think can help uh, whether it is online stuff right now or some future uh, where you can do sort of, you know, whether it's AR, VR, in-person kind of experiences, but do them together, we think is is a meaningful thing. The other thing I think that technology will make an impact on, and is already we're seeing this, is how do we move away from a, a, a world, at least where today we're judging people on, on things like how well you did on a quiz, or how well you did got a, a grade on a particular class. And the, the example that we like to bring up is if you look at now how programmers are judged when you get employed in a company mm-hmm. is often they have been asked show me what you've checked into github or yeah. what app have you written so it's no longer whether you got uh, an a in your cs class at stanford or mit or whatever but what actually have you done and i think technology can better um, extract those things over time than just quiz cause and grade so that's another uh, maybe a way in which technology can shift enable and shift. So it's going away from just this assessment, uh, because assessment was the most scalable way right. to judge someone's competence. And how do you broaden the, the, the judging of those competencies is, is another way that I think technology can help. I agree. I think that's a, that's a pretty good point. Um, and another point that plays into that also is... Um, um, uh, the grade, the grades, um, not grading, but the grade system, like first grade, second grade, Ah, yeah, yeah. Based on age, yes. You know, like I before we had um, cool tech. You know, um, it was the only scalable way. How are you gonna educate the whole? Pop- you need a system. You know, right? And then say, okay, the easiest way when you're this age, you're in this grade, yep. and then you just advance, and then you get older. 
Um, but you know, as we see with some um, uh, newer models, for example, what Khan Lab School is doing yeah. as an example, where there are no grades and a 12-year-old can learn and from a 15-year-old or the other way around. Uh, maybe a 12-year-old can teach yeah. a 15-year-old in a specific sub subject, why not, you know? Um, so I think that's also, I, I, I really ha have high hopes for technology to enable these type of classroom environments. Yeah because it just makes them more scalable. As in, in fact, so, so you know, even we have precedents like the Montessori system where mm -hmm. they, at least up to a certain age, have um, bands of ages in a, in a single classroom, all doing what you're describing yeah. without even too much technology. Yeah. But a, a great example, at least on Edmodo that we have, and it happens uh, frequently, perhaps every day, every week, is um, a classroom, uh, this recent example is a classroom in South Carolina of 12th grade English students connecting with a classroom of ninth graders in Georgia oh, okay. and the teachers connected and what was really interesting is what what the teacher from the the ninth grade classroom said is that she was having a hard time conveying some of these concepts in grammar or whatever they were it was an English language arts class and that when those ninth graders were being taught by the twelfth graders somehow they were much more receptive because they thought of them as being cooler and they're closer peers. to my age and my peers. So the first thing that happened is the ninth graders were more receptive and therefore everything improved from that point of view. Mm -hmm. But even for the 12th graders, going back to the point that you made, they now finally realized, wow, I'm a teacher and they felt a lot more responsible and accountable. So their skills also improved. And this happens every day yeah. on platforms like Edmodo. But that I think is a great way that technology can help. It's peer-to-peer -peer learning at in various ways. Yeah, that wouldn't have happened without technology. Yeah. Yeah, Unless you made a physical visit, yeah. which, which of course is very The probability of it happening is exactly. smaller, yeah. yeah. Um, and being able to do it on a continual basis, right? All right. This is not just a one-time check-in. You're doing this where once a week or once every whatever. It was at least, in this case, it was at least one semester long, perhaps even longer. Yeah. Um, I just want to quickly come back to um, to the social aspect, just uh, to, as a last kind of topic. Um, you know, as um, as society changes, also the skills we need to t teach kids changes. Um, and you know, while I think that learning alone for yourself with a one-on-one -on -one tutor might have been a great way of, of learning, if you want to be good good at solving math problems. Um, as technology advances, skills, um, what we call the 21st century skills, are become more and more important. Critical thinking, problem solving, collaborating with others, you know. Um, and um, so I think it's interesting to see how the, the social part becomes even more important as technology improves. Yes. So it's not like technology kind of like deletes the social part but the social part becomes more important so I think there's two things the, the people often Thank list you. the four C's there's, there's uh, communication collaboration creativity and critical thinking mm -hmm. of the things that we need you know so clearly communication collaboration uh, technology can help I mean we know it can help yeah. it can also distract which is a separate conversation it can take you mm -hmm. in ways that you don't necessarily you're not necessarily communicating and collaborating. So, so one way to think about it is what are we going to do in the future when everyone has a device, which we now see with our children, with other people's children, 
um, that in fact they feel a little bit more lonely than in, a, in an environment perhaps without a device. Because right. in some ways they have everything here to communicate and collaborate, but in some ways that it seems like it's, it's, it's sort of almost um, paradoxical, but that they seem to be more lonely than more connected. So that's yeah. one thing we've got to park out there and think about. But the other question is what can technology do for critical thinking and or for creativity? Yeah. And, and I personally believe for creativity, <clears throat> while technology can help, it's usually some fire under your feet that makes it sort of gives you the biggest impetus. Um, <laughs> now, technology can help, but, but really there's always a question of how do you become entrepreneurial about something? And it's not just one of those things that you learn. I think, for example, Ketan and Joe, when they were at Apple, the reason they were entrepreneurial is they were saying like, whatever we develop would be cool to have Apple right. make it into a big product, you know, which would be super cool. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that's where the social pieces are more important. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in the whole, uh, and I, I don't, you know, I mean, I don't have, I mean, obviously we don't have all the answers today, but the more and more we can try and get technology to help. I don't believe today there's a lot of technology that can really help in the critical thinking and the creative side as much. It helps improve the productivity of a creative thinker, mm -hmm. but it doesn't help creative thinking as much at it least doesn't I, make you creative make, yeah make okay. you make you at least that's where I stand today yeah but I'm sure there will be some amazing breakthroughs in these areas I mean you know one can ex say yeah. that look project based learning projects can be broken down into chunks and teams can work using some sort of technology together so again they're collaborating towards a, a common goal but to me that's more about collaboration than critical thinking, even though it addresses the critical thinking because you're working in groups, you're trying to solve a problem. So it's not that technology cannot help. It's just that, is that the big thing or could it be done without technology as well? You know? Yeah, I mean, that's always the question. Um, I think for sure what technology has helped with is um, making it easier to be creative, I would say. Like starting a company today is uh, orders of magnitude easier than starting a company 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, but is that the step that you would say is the creative step? That's just a tactical step that you're right. You're exactly. absolutely right. I don't, yeah, it's maybe. Uh, yeah, my point is, it's if you're already creative, it's easier to actually execute that creativity. Yeah. I would say. Yeah, that makes um, it more productive, but yeah. it doesn't help you become more creative. Th that that I don't know. Yeah, that I uh, I I don't yeah. have any data on that. But um, <coughs> I mean, maybe it does. Maybe I don't. You could argue. Does watching two hours of Netflix or YouTube per day give you more ideas of what you could do? Yeah. Maybe it does. Maybe it distracts you from being creative. Maybe if you just had two hours for yourself in a room, you would start doing something mm. and not be distracted in the passive, lazy way. But I, I'm sure there's research on that. I, but I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, yeah, even I don't have. A, I mean, uh, uh, an example that comes to mind is a really weird one. Growing up in Bombay in India. I still remember, you know, our, there's a very big train station called Victoria Terminus. Mm -hmm. It's a central station in Bombay. And, it's a beautiful station. And all <laughs> the trains would come in because it's the beginning point, because we're on the coast. Right. These trains would get washed and cleaned and come in and they would then be filled with people and this train would go off to some big city like Delhi or Calcutta or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And as this 
these empty, washed, clean trains were coming in, there was a bunch of these street kids. These are kids who didn't have any homes or whatever. Mm-hmm. I still remember, and at some point, somebody got creative about this. They would all be jumping in and reserving their seats, like lying down, <laughs> and then wait till the actual passengers start to come and then sell them oh, that's this location. I mean, that's a great example of creativity in my <laughs> mind, right? Yeah. But, and it came probably out of what you said, out of necessity, they found a way to make money right. doing this. But, you know, how how does that happen? How does it get triggered? What, you know, that's that's still something that, and would technology help? No, you in know? fact, I think, I think Ketan's <laughs> point is a good one because I think some of the most, uh, now again, our bias maybe because we come from India, some of the most creative things we've seen is in things like this, this these street booksellers. Like, how do they decide what books they should stack? Because they only mm-hmm. have limited amount of money to for working capital. And if they don't push the right books, like suppose they, then they have a real problem with uh, with a cash flow issue. Yeah. So they, I think, have, you know, and we need to learn from examples like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and examples in Africa, wherever else in the world. I think people, when they're really pushed or stretched, they really become pretty creative. You know, you have a small amount of place. The question is, what goods do you sell? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's a very different problem from like a large retailer that talks about shelf space and so on and Definitely. so forth. Yeah. So there's lots of examples of creativity that have no technology whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've made it, they've made it, they've made, they've been successful. The question, of course, we always ask is, is it scalable? Like yeah. if you gave them more capital, what would they do with it? And yeah. could they actually expand it? And would they end up in the same boat that other large companies are in? Yeah. And and that's a question that I'd like to explore more because, yeah. you know, uh, it, but, but to your point about technology, it's not that technology per se is what is required for creativity. Definitely not, yeah. The question remains, can technology amplify the creativity? Yep. And, yeah. Uh, well, I think that's a good ending um, to a very interesting discussion. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you, Jan. Yeah. Thank you, Jan.